As you're doing that, please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 15. So we can continue our sermon series through the book of Exodus this morning. Exodus chapter 15, 22 through 27 will be our text. Excuse my strained voice. We had our last flag football game yesterday, and uh, I was assistant coaching the boys' team. Oh, thanks. And, uh, and uh, we were getting uh, jovial. So <clears throat> that's the story about that. I also, while you're turning there, do you want to make mention, I, I heard that today is Larry Mitchum's birthday, 87. Is that, is that right? Larry, 87, happy birthday. What'd he say? I didn't hear him. Oh, he made, you made it, brother. You're here. Happy birthday to Larry. Larry and Virginia, longtime members of Christ Community Church, love them and appreciate them. I will say, though, Larry is ever the barber, so he once again this morning recommended that I get a haircut. <laughs> But I'll tell you this, okay, for anyone who may or may not have a strong opinion on the length of my hair, this is how my wife likes it, and, and I care about her opinion more than I care about yours, so if you got a problem, go talk to Bethany, but happy birthday to Larry, love you, Larry, love you, Virginia, and uh, we love all of you, obviously, but thankful for uh, the gift that Larry has been to our church uh, in his time here, and so... We rejoice. We rejoice. Another year, man. You made it. You're here. Love them. Okay. Exodus chapter 15, uh, verses 22 through 27 will be our text this morning. The Holy Spirit says this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would make the bitter sweet this morning through the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you've ever been to the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta, has anybody ever been there? Coca-Cola? Okay, in Atlanta. You know that part of the tour that you do at the Coca-Cola headquarters is um, there's an exhibit where you can sample pop soda from all over the world. So not just Coca-Cola products that are sold here in America, but 
uh, beverages, soft drinks that are from all over the world. Epcot Center actually has the same uh, thing. It's called Club Cool. Uh, but among the choices at this exhibit where you can try pop from all around the world, there is a beverage from Italy called Beverly. Has anybody ever tried Beverly before? Soda? No? Not a single person? Seriously? When you all went to Atlanta, you didn't try this? Okay. When I, you know, there were some hands up of people who went to the, the Coke spot. Anyway, there's a, there's a beverage called Beverly, okay? It is the most disgusting <laughs> drink that you will ever try in your life. It is nasty. It is utter bitterness. There is literally nothing thirst quenching about Beverly whatsoever. Uh, like people drink it as like a challenge. It's called the Beverly Challenge, where you have to like get the little paper cup and fill it up and try to drink, you know, like just a couple ounces. It's really gross. Uh, the Beverly Challenge. It's like, okay, think of like the Holy Grail of soft drinks, which is obviously the McDonald's Diet Coke. The Beverly is like the Antichrist to the McDonald's Diet Coke. It is bad. Um, now, Israel here in Exodus 15 may not have gone to the world of Coca-Cola, but they, they do stumble upon a bitter beverage uh, here in Exodus 15, 22 through 27. After days of not drinking water at all, they finally come to the waters of Mara, but they're too bitter to drink. And our scripture passage this morning tells the story immediately following the Red Sea and Moses' song that we looked at last week, now that God transforms the bitter, undrinkable waters of Mara to sweet, thirst-quenching water. And from the outset, as we dig into this text, we know this much for sure. We know that like every pericope in the Bible, that this text is guiding us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to give you a sermon summary this morning. This sermon summary or thesis is going to kind of be our guide as we walk through the text. It's, it's one sentence, and what we're going to do is just divide this sentence in two and see that this is what we're uh, seeing from God's Word. But here's our sermon summary. God transforms the bitterness of death to the sweetness of life through the tree of the covenant keeper who passed God's test. I'm going to read that for you again. God transforms the bitterness of death to the sweetness of life through the tree of the covenant keeper who passed God's test. So we're going to use that sentence to move through Exodus 15, 22 through 27. And like I said, you can call them two points if you want. They're not really points. We're really just going to cut the sentence in two and look at those two different angles. But let's start with the first part of the sentence. God transforms the bitterness of death to the sweetness of life through the tree. That's where we're going to start. First, though, a note on the literary structure of our text here in Exodus 15, through 27. Just like Moses' song that we read last week, Exodus 15, 1 through 21, remember last week we noted that Moses' song has a chiastic structure a chiasm is a, is a literary form wherein uh, uh, 
two points are being mirrored along the way, kind of like how a pyramid builds to the top. These these verses will mirror each other till we get to the middle of the text, which is going to give us the main point of the text. So just like Moses' song in the beginning of Exodus 15, the end of Exodus 15 also has a chiastic structure. It's like a pyramid. So take note of this. Verse 22 chronicles the beginning of Israel's journey. Uh, It's paralleled in verse 27 with the culmination of the three days journey. Notice that. 22, they set out. 27, they find a place to rest. Uh, Verse 23, the people find bitter water. In verse 27, they're then surrounded by drinkable water. There are 12 springs of water. They encamped there by the water. In verse 24, the people complain. In verses, uh, the end of verse 25 through verse 26, Yahweh tells the people how they should act. Okay, they, they, they act how they shouldn't. They complain, they grumble. And then in 25 and 26, he tells them how they should act. That leads us right to the center of the text, the beginning of verse 25, where Yahweh miraculously transforms the bitter water into sweet water. Okay, so you can see that structure, that Hebrew parallelism in 22 and 27, 3 and 27, uh, 24 and then 25 and 26, all leading to the center there in verse 25. The miracle that God works is the point of this pericope. We pick up this week where we left off last week after Israel's song of praise to God for their salvation at the Red Sea uh, or the Sea of Reeds, if you want to read the Hebrew literally. And now Moses leads God's people on a three-day journey into the wilderness. You may or may not remember that in Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, when Moses first confronts Pharaoh, Moses asked Pharaoh to let Israel take a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship Yahweh. So we see the parallel here now through the plagues or the strikes through the Red Sea, through the song, now they're beginning in the wilderness and they take a three-day journey just as Moses had said. Israel wanted to take a three-day journey so that they can go and worship. But when we get to Marah, the people of Israel do not worship. They grumble. And at first glance, Israel's grumbling can feel warranted to us, can't it? I mean, they've gone three days unable to find water. That's a long time to only have whatever water you brought with you when you left. So they go three days. They can't find any water to drink. When they finally do find water, it's too bitter that they can't drink it. It's, it's salty. It's, it's undrinkable. The Hebrew word mara means bitter. So they called this place bitterness because they couldn't drink the water. Now again, this seems like a reasonable thing to grumble about, doesn't it? Without water, they will die. The bitter water is useless to them because it will only yield death. It's almost like dying of thirst while you're adrift in the ocean. The bitter water of Mara is taunting them as water is what they need most and this water is undrinkable. At first glance, you can understand their gripe. You can identify with that. But what Scripture reveals to us is that our first glance is our excusing of the inexcusable. 
The Net Bible, which is the New English translation of the Bible, has a super helpful footnote on this passage and what the, what the grumbling of the Hebrews means here in verse uh, 24. It's the Hebrew word loon, and it's, quote, used almost exclusively of Israel in the wilderness, wandering to describe the rebellion of the Israelites against God. Now listen to this. This is what grumbling means. They were questioning God's abilities and motives. The action is something like a parliamentary vote of no confidence. They were giving God a vote of no confidence with their grumbling. This is a healthy recalibration for us as a church because I think if we're honest, we would say that grumbling and complaining can be treated like acceptable sins in many churches. But that's not how God sees it. Complaining is not a trivial sin in the eyes of the Lord. Complaining is questioning God's abilities and motives. Complaining complaining is questioning God's abilities and motives. It's a vote of no confidence for God. The Holy Spirit reveals elsewhere in Scripture this same truth. I think of Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Listen to Philippians 2, 14 through 18. It says, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may, be poured, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me." Paul instructs them not to complain. Do you guys know where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. And he's rebuking the free people for complaining. I remember um, when Tara's mom was sick and was about to pass away, Pastor Kevin and I went to the hospital to visit her, and uh, we were looking to encourage her and encourage the family and we went in, and she started encouraging us and uh, <laughs> telling us to trust in the Lord. And she, she was confident in her hope, and she knew where she And we walked away, and we were like, what just happened? Like, she just, she just like, encouraged us. We went to encourage her. Like, Paul's in prison, okay? I feel like I would want to complain if I was in prison. That feels like something I, I might be tempted to do. And he's writing them a letter to tell them to stop complaining, Scripture commands us to do all things without grumbling or disputing. The word for grumbling here in Philippians 2.14 is gagusmas. That's the same word in the Septuagint for Exodus 15, that Israel grumbled in the wilderness. Paul is commanding us not to be like Israel in the wilderness. He's, he's making a literary connection there. Complaining is not a minor sin. Complaining is cosmic rebellion against God. The rightful judgment for complaining is eternal conscious punishment in hell. Because God is eternally holy 
And complaining is questioning God's motives and God's ability. Israel's grumbling is so heinous precisely because God knows what he's doing. When we complain, we speak and we act as if God doesn't know what he's doing. The bitter water at Marah was not a surprise to Yahweh. Yahweh didn't say, oh no, I brought them all the way here and there's not even water. What am I going to do? It was not a shock to him. God brings them to the bitter waters so that he can perform this miracle and so that he can show them what he's ultimately doing in redemptive history. You see, the bitter water is a picture of our sin. Just as the bitter water leads to death, so does our sin. And then Yahweh commands Moses to throw a log in the bitter water, and the water becomes sweet. You may note if you have an ESV Bible in verse 25, the word log, ESV translates it as log. It's not a good translation. You can see there's a footnote that, uh, that the actual the Hebrew word is the word tree. It's the word etz. Literally means tree. Yahweh tells Moses to, to pick up a tree and to throw it in the bitter water. And this is important because there's a hermeneutical thread here that we want to be aware of. Whenever you see a tree mentioned in Scripture, you're being clued in on something specific. That is not arbitrary. Pastor Zach said it this morning. God is sovereign. Nothing happens by accident or mistake or coincidence. This is even more true with the Bible, as the Holy Spirit inspired men to write the Bible. Scripture begins in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 9. Revelation 22, verse 2, tells us that the tree of life will be in the new creation when Jesus Christ returns to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. So Scripture begins with a tree, and Scripture ends with a tree, and the very center of Scripture is about a tree. The tree in Exodus 15 that turns the bitter water into sweet serves to point us forward when God would ultimately turn the bitter to sweet through the tree of his son. You see, hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ would take the bitterness of our sin on the cross. Quoting Deuteronomy 21, Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Jesus took the curse that we deserve because of our sin and he took it on himself when he died on the cross. Christ endured God's wrath for our sin to the point that he laid down his life. Jesus clues us in on what's happening on the cross beforehand when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to Matthew 26, 36-39. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed and said, Father, if it is possible, 
let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed for that cup to pass, but if it, if it was the only way, then he said, your will be done. That cup was the bitter cup of God's wrath for the sins of his people. And Jesus on the cross drank every drop of the just punishment that the elect deserve for their sin. It's all gone. There is nothing left. All of the wrath, all of the justice that is rightfully deserved for all who believe was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And just as Israel didn't have to drink the bitter waters because of the tree of God's mediator, so now we don't have to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath because of the tree of God's true and final mediator, his son, the Lord Jesus. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Romans 6, 9 says, death no longer has dominion over him. Did you notice in Exodus 15, verse 23, that once again, the scripture is foreshadowing Holy Week for us, noting that Israel went a three days journey into the wilderness. Just like you see the theme throughout scripture of the tree, you must train your mind to think of Jesus' resurrection on the third day whenever you see three days in the Bible. It's never a coincidence. If something happened in redemptive history over the course of three days, it was a providential picture to point you to Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Jesus transforms the bitter to sweet by his three-day journey through hell, death, burial, and resurrection. God takes the bitterness of sin, guilt, shame, and death and he transforms them into the sweetness of forgiveness, holiness, and resurrection through the tree of Jesus Christ. And this is accomplished by what theologians call the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned. We've noted that several times throughout our liturgy already this morning. But on the cross, Jesus took our sin so that by repentance and faith, we might receive Jesus' righteousness. And that brings us to the second part of our sermon summary. The first part, again, God transforms the bitterness of death to the sweetness of life through the tree and here's the second part now, of the covenant keeper who passed God's test. In the second half of verse 25, God tells the people that instead of grumbling, they should listen to the voice of Yahweh their God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. God says if they will do that, he will not curse them as he cursed the Egyptians. Now these verses here are a little preview of the relationship dynamic that God has with his people all throughout the old covenant. God is not saying that under the Mosaic covenant, people were saved by works. Some older theologians, maybe some older dispensational theologians have wrongly taught that Israel was saved by keeping the law, that there were different forms of salvation in different dispensations. 
But we know that that's not true. Scripture tells us that Abraham was justified by faith hundreds of years before the law was even formally given. Keeping the law was never salvific, but whether or not one kept the law determined their covenantal blessings and their covenantal cursings. And that's what the Lord's talking about here. It's interesting, did you note in verse 25, Moses tells us that Yahweh tested Israel. He made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. We see in verse 27 that when this whole incident happens, when they come to the water and they start to grumble and the miracle happens, like at Mara, they're really not that far from the oasis that they're going to end up at with the 12 springs of water and the palm trees. God knew that, obviously. And God was using this, this incident at Mara to test his people. He'll do the same thing in chapter 16 with the bread from heaven. Like Father Abraham before them, who was tested when Yahweh commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now Israel's being tested. Israel's trust in the Lord is put to the test through this bitter water. Do they believe everything they've been told so far? Do they believe everything they've seen? Or the moment that things don't, aren't easy, do they begin to complain? I mean, they just walked through the Red Sea. They just experienced one of the greatest, if not the greatest, miraculous event in the whole Old Testament. And three days later, they're grumbling and they're complaining. But God's testing of his people goes back even further than Abraham. Once again, there's a redemptive theme here that's woven throughout the tapestry of Scripture's narrative because there's a sense in which Israel is recapitulating Adam here. When God created Adam, God gave Adam what we call the covenant of works. He told Adam that Adam must be fruitful and multiply and that he must not eat of the tree or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Adam obeyed God's command, then he and his posterity would live forever in sinless relationship with their creator. But if Adam sinned, he would surely die. Now, I don't think that this situation, that this covenant of works here, was an indefinite time of testing for Adam. I think it was a definite time. During this period of testing, Adam was sinless, but he had the ability to sin. But what I don't think is I don't think that Adam would have perpetually been in that state as long as he didn't sin. And that all of humanity would have perpetually been in a state of sinless, but able to sin until one of them sinned. No, I think what Scripture is revealing to us, especially through Israel and Jesus, is that with Adam, it was a short period of testing. We don't know what that was. But if Adam had passed the test, if Adam had not eaten of the tree in that short period of time, he would have received glorification. Adam and all of humanity would have entered into a state of sinlessness without the ability to sin, just as we will be in the resurrection. But we'll never know that because Adam failed. 
Adam and all of humanity with him fell because of the sin with the tree. We are sinners because we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And now Israel recapitulates Adam as God puts them to the test. Just as Adam was put to the test in the beginning, so now Israel is put to the test, culminating with a miracle and a tree. And like Adam, Israel failed as well. This past Monday in our church-wide scripture reading, we read Numbers 13 when Moses sent the spies out to spy out the promised land and 10 of the spies come back and they reject Yahweh's command to conquer the land. Only Caleb and Joshua want to obey the word of the Lord. So at that point, Yahweh curses that generation and bars them from the promised land, just like their father Adam was barred from the Garden of Eden after his sin. Israel failed just like Adam, but both are antitypes for the one who finally and fully passed the test, Jesus Christ. Pastor Zach led us in our call to worship from Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus fulfills both the testing of Adam and Israel. Just as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness for 40 years, so Jesus went through the waters of baptism and into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and to be tempted by Satan. When Adam was tempted, he could eat of anything except for the fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Jesus was tempted, he hadn't eaten in over a month. Like Adam was tested for a a short, definite period of time, so was Jesus. Jesus was tempted for 40 days. But where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus did not give in to the voice of the devil. Jesus did not sin like Adam and Israel And in this way, Jesus is the last Adam. Pastor Brett mentioned he is the true Israel. Just as all of humanity fell in Adam's sin, now all who repent and believe the gospel can be saved through Jesus' righteousness. Pastor Mike led us earlier in the recitation of the Apostles' Creed. And this theology, these points we're making This is why it's so imperative that we confess together that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Those are non-negotiable doctrines to us. It doesn't matter to us if that sounds weird to the world, if we sound crazy, if that sounds like a fairy tale. Good, good. Because as we saw in the book of James at Bible class this morning, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. It sounds crazy that the eternal Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, that's what we believe. We cannot budge on that. It was because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit that in his humanity, he did not inherit original sin. Jesus never sinned. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, 2 Peter 2.22. Jesus Christ obeyed God's law in thought word and deed. Jesus never broke covenant with God. Jesus, we confess in the Nicene Creed, is both truly God and truly man. Jesus is both creator and he is the last Adam. 
The rock might be black, Adam, but Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is both Yahweh and true Israel. Jesus is the true and final mediator between God and man because he is truly God and truly man. 1 Timothy 2.5. And so now it was Jesus' life, his sinless life, covenant-keeping, law-abiding, righteous life that qualifies him to be the spotless lamb, the acceptable sacrifice. If Jesus did not live that law-abiding, covenant-keeping, sinless, righteous life, he would not be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This also is non-negotiable in our Christology. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was thoroughly law-abiding. Jesus was covenant-keeping. And because that's true, he could endure God's wrath and still come out the other side. Jesus did what Adam was supposed to do and failed. Jesus did what Israel was supposed to do and failed. Jesus kept covenant with God, and because he did, he could stand condemned in our place. And because he did, three days later, he would stand victorious in our place. God transforms the bitterness of death to the sweetness of life through the tree of the covenant keeper who passed God's test. How should we respond to this good news? First, if you're not a Christian, the only response is that you must repent and believe the gospel. God calls all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance happens after the Holy Spirit works regeneration in your heart, causing you to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus alone. To place your faith in Jesus alone means that you know who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that you assent to the validity of that knowledge, you believe it's actually true, and then finally that you transfer your trust to Christ alone. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9 through 10 and verse 13. So if you are not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Jesus, don't worry about anything else I'm going to say from this point forward because none of it's gonna matter if you're not following Jesus. What you need to do right now in your own heart and mind is cry out to God and say, God, I believe that you are holy, that I am a sinner, and that Jesus died for my sins and that he was raised on the third day, and I believe in Jesus alone. And if you do that, God will save you. That is the most important thing anyone can do ever in their life. The gospel beckons even now. Please do not harden your heart like Pharaoh because if you do, you will be drowned in the just seas of God's righteous wrath. If you are a Christian, then this passage instructs us in how we should face temptation, trials, and testing. First and foremost, we must look to Jesus who imputes his righteousness to us. 
We must not start with the imperative, but we must start with the indicative. We must not start with what we have to do. We must start with what Jesus has done for us. We are righteous because of faith in Jesus alone. Nothing else that we can do is ever going to be righteous apart from faith. Hebrews says, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. If you're not trusting in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa. It doesn't matter if you're the most benevolent, church-attending, sweetheart of a person who's ever lived. If you're not trusting in Jesus, your sin is going to earn you eternal conscious punishment in hell. But if you are trusting in Jesus, then you should know. We should be encouraged that we are righteous because of our faith in Jesus. Our obedience to God is futile to save us, but God is saving us unto good works. There's nothing that we can ever do to deserve eternal life. We must make that clear. We are saved by grace through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Look to Jesus. Even as a Christian, step number one is always look to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. And then when we look to Jesus, the Father makes us more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies us through the means of grace in the local church. We need the church all the time. This is true. And that most assuredly includes when we face temptation, trials, and testing. Our inclination is to run and hide like Adam did. Our inclination is to grumble like Israel in the wilderness. But godliness is found in following in the footsteps of Jesus who trusted his father. And when he was tempted by Satan, he fought temptation with scripture. Jesus quoted the word of God three times as Satan tempted him. Church, do not neglect the means by which God has appointed for your sanctification. God gives us the preaching of the word, the sacraments, prayer, singing, giving of tithes and offerings, love and fellowship. He gives us the church community so that we can be more like Jesus. And so it's this simple. If you don't want to be like Jesus, then don't come to church. Because that is how the Father makes us more like Jesus. God transforms the bitterness of death to the sweetness of life through the tree of the covenant keeper who passed God's test. Listen to me. Are you dead in unbelief? Look to the cross of Jesus. Are you struggling with sin? Look to the cross of Jesus. Are you suffering? Look to the cross of Jesus. Jesus alone is where we find the sweetness of forgiven sin and eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would turn the bitter to sweet, that for anyone and everyone who is among our body this morning, who is not trusting in Jesus alone, that you would take the tree of Jesus and that you would plunge it into the bitter waters of their heart and that you would transform them to a sweetness of knowing Jesus and assenting 
to who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and ultimately that they would trust in Jesus alone. Father, we pray for your people as we sojourn along in sin and suffering, that you would keep us from grumbling and complaining, that you would keep us from hiding like Adam in the garden, that we would build our lives around your means of grace here in the local church, and that you would make us more like Jesus as we do so. Father, we ask now as we come to your table that you would shape our hearts to pray as your son taught us when he said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, rise now and come to the Lord's table.